TJ, um, we've got a few things here from you, so uh, I'll turn it over to you. Sure. Um, so, yeah, the, the question was pretty long when I originally wrote it out, but now the way I kind of formulated it in my head probably be a lot easier to answer. So um, there's lots of there's lots of research I've done on, on different cults and religions and the way they think and the way that it kind of seems like a lot of them have came into this type of knowledge from time to time throughout history. And there's there's different kinds of meditation techniques and like and breathing techniques and, and visualizations that almost seems like these people have set up folders in the larger consciousness system that were then almost password protected so that you could kind of access them if you know how to do their certain technique down the line. Is, is that kind of something that could go on? Well, of course, all of the, you, know, you say that they've kind of created folders. Um, everything you do, all of your choices, all of your thoughts, you know, yeah. everything, all of your, your intents all get saved. You know, that's mm -hmm. part of your record or your folder, if you will, and that's true of everyone. So mm -hmm. everyone kind of has a folder, I guess, that that is them, because we are information. You know, we we are information as well, and that's our information that defines us. You right. know, is this this folder. So that's true of all of us. So say, I guess what my my question kind of was is, so say there's a certain cult that you know has a group of members that can all sort of meet up in the non-physical the same way that you and Dennis used to be able to, and would be able to sort of build something there together that they would be able to then password protect so that only people that they wanted would, that knew how to do this certain technique could get to their folder that has all of this stuff stored in it. And then they would have access to. Well, I suspect that's possible. Um, to an extent, you know, it kind of depends. It's just like password protection in the real world. You know, as I, right. I think the way I answer these questions, first I go into my experience. You know, as you're asking the question, I'm going into the experience, and yes, you know, do I have I done this? And if so, have I run into this that others have done, and whatever. Password protection there is sort of like password protection here, in the sense that any password can be broken, you know, any protection sure. scheme, you know, there's a way around it, there's a way through it. So the password protection is only at the level they are capable of creating. So for sure. those that are a level above that, then the password doesn't work. You know, the protection doesn't work and others can see very much exactly what's going on and what's being built, what's being done and, and all the rest of it is still transparent. So those that uh, don't have as much facility as they do, then it's password protected. They, uh, you know, those that have lesser ability can't get access to that. Yeah. So, so then it's access, access can be modified just with your intent. Like you can do that with your own data. You can deny others access. You can say, I don't want anybody to see any of my data. Or when they look at my aura, I just want them to get random information. Or I always wanted to give them this picture. Here's the picture that I want. So when anybody comes asking for this data, then send them this picture. You say, not, not the real data, to send them this picture. Well, you can do that sort of thing. That's part of your intent. You can set up those sorts of things. Those that, that uh, don't know any better will just get you know, that picture. They won't necessarily get your data. And those that 
do know better, you know, can see it and say, oh, I see that. No, I want the real stuff. I don't want that picture. And they can go right in and subvert your, your protection. So it just depends. Uh, yes, you can do those kinds of things. It is an information system. And you can, you can set up rules and that sort of thing in the information system. But they're not foolproof. They're only at a level at which you're, you are capable of maintaining them. And okay. you do have to, you do have to main, maintain things like that. Like all information, if you don't keep maintaining it, it, you know, entropy increases and it dissipates. It goes away. So once something like that is no longer being worked or no longer being maintained, it tends to evaporate. Okay. So then, yeah, so then with that same line of logic, it's almost like there's in the larger system that there's these folders that you need admin privileges to access and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, there are some, and you can make some of those yourself, you know, like I say. Yeah, there are ways to make the data unaccessible to other people. You know, that's what we do when we open up our, our awareness to the fact that all of us are connected. Well, we have to be able to shut out a lot of that because we wouldn't, you know, there's seven and a half billion of us. You wouldn't want seven and a half billion, you know, conversations in your mind, you know, all at once. That obviously would not be functional. You wouldn't be able to deal with any of it. So we open and close that link based on our intent. So we want to communicate with a particular person in a particular place. We make that connection. And we don't want to. We take that connection away. So in a way, that's kind of like building a wall, you know, a firewall or opening it up. So our intent is what, you know, can turn things on and off. And some people don't realize that early enough on and they get bombarded. They get very sensitive. And they get, let's say they start uh, feeling other people's emotions and other people's feelings. And now they can just get completely overwhelmed by it because everybody around them, everybody they know, they're feeling these feelings and these connections all the time. And a lot of feelings people have are kind of icky sometimes, you know, and you get all of this stuff. And I've known people that get so wound up in that they almost are dysfunctional because all this stuff bombards them. And they don't realize they can turn it off. They think that you're sensitive to feelings, and now you're sensitive to everybody's feelings all the time. And they kind of carry that through life as a burden because they really don't want to know. You know, they don't want – they realize, first, that's kind of nifty, and then they realize it's, it's kind of a burden to, to carry all of that. It's better to let people send you things when they're ready and when they want to. And when they want privacy and they don't want to share, let them have that privacy. So you can turn off your connection so that you don't really get that data unless you reach out for it. Other than that, it's, you know, it's the, the default position of the, of the switch is off. And then you reach out for it. You can turn specific switches on if you want. And that is all controlled by your, by your intent. Yeah, great. Thanks. Tom, we're going to move on to a question from MBT forum user Event Horizon. Uh, we're talking about entropy again. It's entropy reduction and predictability. Uh, he writes, as a being decreases its entropy, it will choose to react in better, more loving ways in any given situation. A being at the lowest levels of entropy will consistently choose to react in the best or most loving way. So does that mean that as entropy decreases, a being's choices become more predictable? 
Uh, no. Um, you know, if you know that somebody is always going to do the thing that's self-serving, that, uh, you know, is, is fear-based and, and uh, greedy or however they are, then that makes them kind of predictable. And if you know people are going to try to do the right thing and help other people, then I guess that's a little predictable. We get predictable by the fact that we have personalities, that we have, you know, uh, uh, you know the sum total of all our experiences are who we are. And once you get familiar with that sum total of experiences and how we react, then we get a little predictable because of that. But it doesn't make you more predictable because you act with love than it makes you, you know, than if you act with fear. You know, you know both of those can aid to your predictability. But there isn't one other wrinkle in it, and that is that the more you grow up, the more love you become, the bigger your decision space gets. There's more and more things now that you can that you can do, more choices that you have to make. And with all of that variety, with all that diversity that you have to spread your, your choices over, I think you would probably get a little less predictable because nobody knows exactly how you're going to act with a new thing. Well, even though they know your personality, they're not sure until you do that new thing. Whereas on the negative side, the, the more fear you have, the fewer choices you have. Your decision space shrinks. And as you have smaller and smaller number of choices, it's probably easier and easier to guess the kind of choice that somebody would make. So if anything, it works the, the other way around. All right. Thanks, Tom, for that. Uh, Ron, I understand that uh, you have another question for Tom. Yeah, I actually have two quick questions. Um, so the first one is regarding the going back to the bad guy thing. <clears throat> the more that you lower your entropy, would it be um, – Fair to say that the more, I hate to see you use the word target, but um, maybe the more whispering or, or nudges you get from the negative side to pull you down. Yes, that's, that yeah, that's, that's true. And it's not just the more you, you uh, grow up. It's, it's two things. One is the amount of, inter the, the amount of uh, should we say, influence that you have tends to attract negativity. If you have a lot of influence, then there's a circle. You know, a, a negative being then has more, you know, if they can, if they can give you a nudge toward the, neg toward the negative, then that nudge counts for more if you have a lot of influence. So the more influence you have, the more attractive you are to negative beings. And not necessarily the... Now, I'd say that if you are more evolved you probably are going to get less of that because it just doesn't work. You know, you're not that susceptible to it. You get the little nudge that says, oh, you know, you look at that. There's a $20 bill lying on your friend's table there. You know, nobody would notice if you just slipped it in your pocket. You ought to take it. You deserve it. You know, he never paid you back from the other at a time. Why don't you just take that? You see, but if you're an evolved person, you go, that's ridiculous. Where'd that thought come from? Yeah, that's a, Stupid idea. Of course, I'm not going to do that. I don't care whether he owes me $20 or not. It's not the point. You know, and you, so you reject it right away. So I think the more you grow up, the less of that you get. They don't bother because it's not going to work. Um, if you are waffling, if you're just in the process of, of growing up, you see, now 
someone may try to nudge you to make a poor decision because you could maybe go either way. So the more you are in the growing process, then the more likely you are to attract those nudges. But for the most cases, the negative beings don't really bother most people. They kind of let them go because it, it doesn't make that much difference. Most people don't have enough influence to be bothered. And one of the things about the negative side is that they tend to be a little on the lazy side. They don't, they're not very, you know, I mean, a few of them are more proactive, but mostly that's not the way it is. The negative side kind of, you know, keeps its own counsel and spends time with itself and its kind. They're not all that interested in, in uh, doing those kinds of things. So you can't think of these negative people as, you know, the little devils that get on your shoulder and whisper, you know, mean things in your ear. Uh, for the most part, I'd say the average person out there doesn't have any negative entities trying to tell them what to do. They're more likely to have positive beings try to encourage them, give them synchronicities, give them things in their intuition, uh, give them uh, insights, that sort of thing, because the positive side really wants to help people grow up. The negative side just wants to make a mess. You see, it's not so much focused on individuals. Now, you're an individual with a, with a, you know, with a big lever. You're an individual who influences thousands of people. Well, now that's different. You see, you can make a big mess with that individual, whereas just the average guy, you know, okay, so you tell the guy that he ought to, you know, holler at his wife and kick the dog. You know, well, so what? You know, what have you done in the world? You know, what have you destroyed? You haven't done much. So most people don't, don't have to worry about the, the negative influence on them. They, they create enough negative influence themselves to take care of it. You know, they, they don't need any more. Uh, it's, it's, it's just not something that happens that much. The positive influence, if you're open to it, it happens all the time. You get that help that you need all the time. So you have much higher probability of getting positive influence than you do of negative influence. But if you're on the on the wire, if you're right on the edge of making this decision or that, and one of them is a good loving decision and the other is a very greedy bad decision, well, then you might attract a little attention to help you, uh, you know, make a better or a worse decision. But most of the time, now we just get along the way we get along. We, uh, you know, we're we are our own worst enemy. You can't blame your bad decisions on the negative entity whispering in your ear, you know. You make all the choices. All the choices are yours. And uh, for the most part, the negative entities leave normal, everyday, average kind of people alone because there's just not much point in it. Yeah. I have one more quick one if we have time, Keith. Sure. sure. Um, do, you have any, do you have any advice for a father-to-be? My wife's about to give birth to my son. That's uh, my first one. So... Um, any little tidbits or wise information that you could convey? Yes, I will uh, tell, you, I'll tell you a couple of things. One, the most basic thing is you will be your best as a, as a father if you get your own head on straight to begin with. If you get rid of your fear, get rid of your ego, that 
will make you the best father you can be. So it's not something really, it's not like a prescription that you have to, you know, certain ways that you have to act, think, certain things you have to do. If you get rid of your fear, your ego, and your beliefs, then just be natural. Do the things that come to you. Do the things that seem right at the moment. Do the things that, that feel good to you. And if you don't get rid of your ego, your fear, and your beliefs, no matter how hard you try to do it right, you're going to mess it up because that's what fear, ego, and beliefs do. They get in the way. They make you do things that are not helpful and dysfunctional. So the key thing is to get yourself straight and then just be natural. Just act the way it comes to you because it, the way it comes to you will be the best thing. So that's, that's it. The other thing that I would tell you, that, that's kind of in general, very general advice, more specific advice is when your children are very young, you have to take care of them. You have to protect them. You have to make decisions for them. You have to say, no, you can't go play in the street, you know, things like that. You, you are in charge. But as they grow older, you need to let them go and have their own experiences because you learn through experience. You learn from mistakes. You learn from being out in the world and doing. And one of the things that parents, uh, you know, do the worst is they, they want to make sure their children, you know, have every advantage, do everything right, you know, have the right friends, go to the right places, and so on. And as they are very young, you can manage a lot of that because you make those decisions for them. As they grow up, you have to give them all the space and decision space I'm talking about. You have to give them all the decision space that they have the ability to deal with. And that gets particularly tricky by the time they get, uh, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, you know, up through 18. You know, that's a that's a tricky road to, to travel. But, uh, you know, just get your own head straight and realize that these are all little independent consciousnesses that all have to make their way and learn their own things, that you can't teach them everything. You can give them guidance, but you don't make decisions for them. Let them make their own decisions as soon as they're old enough to do so. And that's not necessarily by age. Some children are better able to make their own decisions at 10 than others are at 20. You know, it, uh, it depends on the child and the decision that they're making. But I've found in my own experience that if you give them options, if you, can, if you see them coming up to a decision point and you think it's important or significant to them, give them options. Say, well, look, there's, I can see five different ways you can approach this problem. And here are some of the results that I would guess would happen if you approach it that way. If you go this way, this is the kind of stuff that will happen. If you go that way, that's the kind of stuff that will happen. Tell them all that. Now, if they're teenagers, they will pretend not to listen to you. You know, they'll be, uh, you know, playing a video game or uh, doing something else. And yeah, 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 dad, you know, they will. but they are listening to you. And though they will do whatever they feel like doing, as long as they're old enough to get out of your sight, still, they will have that in their mind. And when things start breaking kind of the way you said they would, if they went down that path, they'll be very quick to recognize it and back up because they've already been shown where that leads, and they will remember it. So you don't always have to get them to salute and say, yes, sir. They usually hear what you're saying. They just need to be independent when they're at that age, if they're teenagers. So you give them options. Give them the benefit of your experience. Give them the benefit of, of you know, 
your greater understanding and then let them make their own choice. And then be there to catch them if their choice is bad. Brush them off and send them back into the game and, uh, you know, give them, uh, give them maybe a, a little more guidance if they need it, but otherwise figure they got to learn on their own. Thank you. It's great advice. You know what, Juan, uh, they were great questions. Uh, you have a hectic and very exciting time ahead of you, and our thoughts and love, uh, all of us, are, are with you yeah. and your family. Yeah, right. Congratulations, yeah, we're about Ron. to move, hence the mess in the back. I'm having a baby and moving within, within a couple of weeks. Thank you, Tom. So, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> everything all at once. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, you, you can handle it, Juan. Well done. Um, Tom, we're going to move on back to Tim, uh, who has a, another question for you. Tim, it's all yours. Okay. Um, the purpose of existing is to lower the entropy of the system. Entropy means order or structure. Is structure and order in someone's private life related to the quality of his or her consciousness? What does it say about the quality of one's consciousness if the person is highly chaotic in his or her everyday life? Does structure in consciousness automatically bring structure in the private life? Yeah, well... There may be some correlation there, but it's not a one-to-one -one because the important thing isn't the, the amount of entropy they have in their life. The important thing is the intent. It's not the action, but the intent. So let's take uh, someone who's really, really messy, like probably your 14-year-old you know, child, if you happen to have one of those, you probably find that they're very messy. Most of them are, and they, you know, have entropy all around. They take off their clothes and they throw them on the floor. You know, they uh, just everywhere they go, they leave a mess. They don't clean up after themselves, and all of that's very high entropy. Well, that doesn't mean that they are a low-quality consciousness because if you look at their intent for that, their intent is something else. It's not just expressing who they are at the being level. It's expressing a certain amount of I amness, and I can, you know, leave my mark wherever. You know, it, it's it's kind of a different thing. Now, if a person is generally disorganized and they're generally, uh, you know, uh, incoherent, then that may be a correlation. They just may be that way through and through. You know, their consciousness may just be kind of decoherent and hasn't uh, gotten to grips with, with life yet. So there may be some correlation, but I would not jump to the conclusion because somebody is messy and has a lot of uh, disorder around them. That, that means that you have a disorderly mind or a disorderly consciousness. There may be other reasons for that, uh, for that disorder. You know, you... Uh, Sometimes you put your time where it matters most, and cleaning up the messes around you isn't on the top of your list of things where it matters most. So you put up with that. That's the position you're in when you have two or three little children under three years old that are making messes constantly, and eventually you just kind of give up trying to run around and pick up behind every one of them. You say, well, it is what it is, and you kind of let it be and, and don't uh, – don't fight that fight of constantly being fussing at them and fussing at them and on their case for making messes. They're children. Let them be. Let the mess be. 
clean it up after they go to bed, or if it's not so bad, you know, leave it there till tomorrow and relax with it. So not a one-to-one -one correlation, but some, some connection, yes. Don't Thank you. I wouldn't be judgmental to others because of the lack of order in their life, unless that's systemic down at the being level at the root and has to do with the, you know, their thoughts and the way they think, then it probably is a reflection of their consciousness. Okay. Cool. Um, Tom, I don't know if you noticed that Sveta just typed up a question that she was going to ask, but uh, the fact is that Greg P, who's also here, uh, had a similar question. So I'm going to turn it over to him to ask his question about the desire to explore. All right. So uh, we have this kind of general rule of thumb that's that's been given in the MPT theory that uh, a high entropy decision is one that's concerned about self, whereas uh, a low entropy decision is concerned about other. But it seems to me like uh, certain things, like the desire to explore reality or experiment with reality or even to create new things, could still be seen as being about self because you're just kind of going out there on your own and, uh, and doing it. <clears throat> but it also seems to me that those things uh, can add or can lower entropy overall because you're, you're making something new, something novel. And uh, so I'd like to, see, to ask you, like, where's the, how do you resolve that together? Okay. Uh, it, it has to do not with what you do, but with why you do it. That's the key. Okay. That's the, that is the main key. It, it's why you're doing it. What is your intent? What's driving this particular uh, kind of action? If you're going to explore, or as uh, Saveta wrote, if you're going to explore other realities, if you're going to uh, you know, explore this reality, that could be for a couple of reasons. It could be uh, something that is a very good thing for you to do, and it's on your path to, to uh, learning and growing, or it could be just something you're doing uh, for, you know, kind of self-centered reasons. I want to explore the, re you know, the larger reality because, you know, I think it would be really, really cool, you know, and I could tell all my friends about the places I went and the creatures I met, and they'd all be envious and, uh, you know, that I have this ability or I could go remote view what they're doing. And, and uh, you know, my, my favorite is, you know, you go uh, visit you know, the girls' locker room. Uh, you could do all sorts of things that are not very high quality. And that may be your, your uh, reason for learning these skills and going out of body and remote viewing and being aware of the information in the databases so you can use it, misuse it, so you can, you know, aggrandize your ego with it. And then it's all not helpful. Uh, if you are doing these things, if you're exploring or doing whatever you do for reasons of growth, learning, so you can get you know, you understand the world better, understand yourself better, make better decisions, then whatever it is you're doing, that's good. Another aspect is you need to stay balanced. Yes, you can spend too much time exploring non-physical reality. If you, if you do that, you become unbalanced. It's like one of the very first questions we got where a person said that I spent all of my time 
you know, focusing on growing up in my consciousness, and I neglected relationships with all the people that were close to me. You know, I, I uh, shut everybody else out. Well, that's becoming unbalanced. You're here in this reality in order to have experiences here, in order to have relationship connections. That's where the rubber meets the road for most of us in our growing up is in relationship. So if you spend time away from here, out of this virtual reality, to the point that you are neglecting those other relationships, then that's out of balance. So we, we can't, you know, we're not balanced if we say spend all of our time here and never let our minds do anything other than stay on our work or our job or, you know, the next physical thing we need to do. If we never consider the big picture thoughts, never consider who are we, why are we, what is our purpose, you know, if those things never cross your mind, then you're unbalanced. You're just 100% engaged in the physical and you don't have any sense of something bigger. That's unbalanced. If you are constantly meditating, and you spend four or five, six hours a day in meditation, that's unbalanced. You know, it's like the, the example I give sometimes is that uh, some, uh, some yogis uh, go off and sit in a cave you know, by themselves, become hermits, and they don't interact with anybody for a long period of time. That's unbalanced. It uh, allows you to develop a lot in a very specific area, but it keeps you from developing at all in a lot of other areas. So you're you're not a balanced person. You have some some of your development is is much further than other parts of your development. Better to develop more evenly. So intent is the key. Balance is the key. Other than that, there may be a time in your life where four hours a day of meditation is just what you need. There may be a time in your life when no meditation, just paying attention to the you know to the physical world is just what you need. So it's not a, not so much the matter of doing as it is the matter of maintaining balance and connect, making all the connections you can because those connections are where you learn. Don't avoid the connections here because they're hard and the connections in that, you know, the, the non-physical reality are easy. That's, uh, that's escape. That's not balance and that's not necessarily good. So there is no magic ratio it's just your intent what are you doing if you're pursuing knowledge it's good if you're escaping problems it's not good right um so i guess part of uh that addressed a lot of a lot of what i was asking also i was kind of wondering uh so like one piece of advice i've gotten elsewhere and, and and what you said covers this is to take what I'm gaining, uh, you know, in NPR, whether it be in dreams or meditation and, and bring it here. So if I go there and I experience, you know, these experiences of love and these like cool things, these cool feelings to bring it and try to recreate it here. Um, my, my question is then that's still the way I'm wording it. It sounds like it's still aggrandizing my ego in a way, because this is, these are like feelings that are inside me and I'm trying to, come and bring them and put them on the world. And I don't want to like, you know, make you get into that mode, right? Trying to control the world. No, it's not, you know, you have to, you have to understand that ego is awareness in the service of fear, awareness in the service of love. Not what we're calling ego. 
That is, in Freudian language, that's superego, not ego. Awareness in the service of love. So they're different. So just because you have awareness of yourself doing something doesn't mean that's ego. It's awareness in the service of fear that's ego. Okay? So you should take what you learn in the non-physical and integrate it to the physical. But you also should do that vice versa. You should take what you learn in the physical and take it to the non-physical. Because what you're doing is you're learning both places. When you're out of body, you're having interactions, you're learning. When you're in this physical world, you have interactions, you're learning. When you're in your dreams, you're having interactions and you're learning. And all of that learning is, is yours, you. You, the individuated unit of consciousness, you're learning. And the things you learn here with your relationships with other physical people, you should take into your dreams and you should take into your out of body or everywhere you go because you're different now you've learned something here it goes with you wherever you go and in the non-physical in your dreams and out of body things you learn there that are important should become a part of your life here uh you're one person you should be integrated you should be the whole of you you know and eventually when you get rid of fear you won't have a subconscious you'll just be conscious you'll be aware of all of you from you know, at the at the being level, it'll all be in there. The subconscious will kind of disappear as a as a thing for you because sub means that your intellect isn't playing in it. Your intellect isn't a part of it. Well, there's a whole bunch of you that's probably not within your intellect's grasp. That's typical. But as we get rid of the fear and get rid of the ego and the beliefs, that tends to disappear. All of you becomes transparent. You are whole. There's no part of you that's outside of your awareness because now your awareness is not in the service of fear. Fear is what makes us hide things. That's where our subconscious comes from. It's things that we don't, can't, and won't deal with in our intellect. So they stay hidden from our intellect. When you get rid of all that fear, there's nothing to hide from anymore. The fear is gone. Now all of you is, is aware and connected. And that, that awareness is whole, but it's an awareness now in love, not in fear. And you're a whole person. And when you have that kind of awareness, your awareness just expands into lots of other things. You're also more aware of other people, not just all of you, but uh, you see other people. And mostly you see all of them as well because you're connected to the, to the, the databases and, and I don't know, you just live in a, in a different space than you do when you are separate. When you're chunked, you have pieces that you're that are in your being level that you don't you can't access your with your awareness. I don't know if that, that helps or not, but you're a whole thing. So all the things you learn everywhere ought to be becoming a part of you, and then you share that wherever you go, wherever your, your consciousness is, that's you. And you take it there, and they're not segmented or compartmentalized, it's all just you. Thank you. Hopefully, uh, Tom, that uh, also answered uh, Sveta's questions and her comments as well. I think uh, that was, was pretty comprehensive there, so I think we can move on. Um, Tom, I really like the next question from forum user Retor. Uh, it's about artificial intelligence replacing the need for people. 
uh, Retail writes, the two hottest tech topics these days are virtual reality and artificial intelligence. It's like humans are closing in on replicating, on a micro scale, the work of the LCS. And it makes me wonder if we're on the brink of generating the next great evolutionary cycle, one that may well have no place or no use for us. I feel right now that we are just a step in the evolutionary process, and once we have completed our assignment, which is to create artificial intelligence, that maybe there won't be a place for people as we know them, that when we return, we'll come back as a form of AI with a different physical structure and a different, much smarter operating system. What do you think? Well, it's not what you can do. It is what your intent is. It's your choices that you have and, and your, your intention uh, in meeting those choices and making those choices. That's the key. So if you have a computer, if you have a, an AI, it will have a certain set of decision space. And that decision space will give a consciousness opportunity to make choices. And if you're a human, you have certain choices that you can make in a certain decision space. Both are just avatars, avatars that consciousness can use in order to make choices and, and learn from. So the avatar is going to make the choice to inhabit the, the, uh, the, you know, the consciousness, going to make the choice to inhabit the avatar that is most likely to help it grow up, whatever that is. Okay, so it really doesn't matter. You know, it's all part of this evolution. If you have a you know, have humans and humans make AIs, if those AIs have a more a richer array of choices. Now what we're talking about here typically are like moral choices, relationship choices, choices of being, not choices of doing. They're choices of being. So wherever those choices are greatest as far as our ability to learn, then that's where that's a that's the right kind of avatar for us. So if we create something that has a larger decision space that's really good for our our uh, increasing the quality of our consciousness, then once you get to a certain point, you'll want to use that avatar because that avatar will express your consciousness better. You see, now I find that. Probably a little hard to to uh, to see that it's going to necessarily be that way, but I don't have this sense of oh well, what will happen to us? Well, we just you know well, what are, what are we? You know, we're consciousness. Nothing happens to us as consciousness. That's not what that question was about. That question is what happens to us as avatars. Well, who cares really what happens to us as avatars? Do you worry about whether the elf or the barbarian? You know. Uh, you know, uh, you know, are in the world of Warcraft, or should there be a new race of elves that have pointier ears? And you know, would that be better? I mean, the avatar is just an avatar. You pick the avatar that suits your evolution of your consciousness best, whatever that is. If your evolution, if your decision space is very small, then perhaps a dog would be a really good choice of avatar for you. If your consciousness is bigger than that, maybe a monkey would be a better choice than a dog because a dog has a more limited set of choices than the monkey does, and so on. Human would be good, but if there's something else that has a better choice than what most humans have, then you'd pick that too. It's just an avatar. It's ones and zeros in a computer. 
don't get emotionally attached to your avatar. You know, it just really doesn't make any difference. But my guess is that most consciousness is going to find humans a very suitable platform for evolution of their consciousness. Because there's, you know, what we do is we interact. We're very interactive. We are social animals. We have relationships. We connect with other people. And in those connections, our egos and our fear is sorely tested in those connections. It kind of reaches in and, and hits all of our buttons and pushes all of our, our you know, sore points. And that is how we learn. And I don't know that an AI is going to be any better at that than we are. The AI may be a whole lot better at adding numbers together or, you know, finding the, uh, you know, the fifth root of a seven-digit number, you know, they may do that in milliseconds, and we can't even begin to figure out how we would start to do that. But all of that stuff is really irrelevant. We're talking about the kind of decisions that help grow consciousness. That's what makes an avatar valuable. Most of that is around relationship. And it would be hard for me to think that an AI would have a whole different process toward relationship that would be so much different from a human's that they would make that much better an avatar. You see? But if you think entirely of physical things, well, a, a robot can lift more, run faster, you know, do math quicker, uh, you know, can do a whole lot of things like that physically better than we can, but who cares? That's not, that's not why consciousness connects to an avatar, not because of how much weight they can lift, how fast they can run. They connect to an avatar because of the choices that it gives them between right and wrong, between good and bad, between love and fear, about being, you see. So I, I don't think humans are going to get obsolete. And if computers somehow do end up with a greater range of relationship and, and uh, consciousness, you know, love, fear kinds of choices, then it would be a good thing for the consciousnesses that are at that level to start inhabiting those computers. And I see that's not competition. That's evolution. It's just the way it is. You know, so it's not really a, a matter of, oh, they get rid of us because you're thinking in terms of, you know, that's fear-based thought in terms of uh, what these things can do physically as opposed to a, a a thought, a love-based thought from consciousness as to how how useful is any avatar. You, know, you could have a, your next uh, your next incarnation. You could have as a, as a chimpanzee if you want, if you think that would be a step forward, and you'd really get to make choices in that avatar that would help improve the quality of your consciousness. Well, you could do that, but for most of us, we've got a lot more choices to make here as humans than we do there, and it would kind of make it a lesser um, challenge, not a greater challenge, but if you're failing at this challenge, maybe that's a good choice. You know, go back to something simpler where you can succeed. You know, and that would be a good thing to do. So anyway, that's that's kind of my thought about that question. It's not a competition, and we poor humans are going to get you know pushed aside, and the world will be taken over. But that's a whole different thought form about physical things and about fear, and it's not like that. Consciousness will inhabit whatever avatar it can in order to learn. It should. 
Avatars are nothing but computations in a computer. There's nothing sacred about the human avatar. It just evolved in a big simulation. And so are these computers now going to be part of the evolution in this big simulation. See? And it doesn't really make any difference. But since relationships the key, I can't see how a computer would have that much more content in their relationships than to humans. Well, maybe they would if they're relating to another computer. Maybe those relationship things would uh, would be deeper and broader, but I don't see how because it's not how fast you do it isn't the point. It's not that you can go through a relationship in milliseconds because you're a computer. You know That's not the point. The point is learning from the experiences. Anything that happens in a millisecond is hard to learn from. So anyhow... That's my two cents on that subject. I think the subject is a little wrong, a little wrong-headed to start with. It sees a competition between between uh, computers and, and humans, and I don't see any competition there. They're just two different platforms, two different avatars. Conscious will inhabit them as they find value in them. That's all, and nothing wrong with that. Well, thanks, Tom, for uh, clearing that up and giving us such a, a comprehensive answer. Um, I'm going to give Greg the next question. Um, it's a question that touches on something that I go round and round with my son about on a regular basis, and he just does not get it. <laughs> and we go round and round. So, uh, Greg, I'll let you ask your question, and uh, and uh, maybe my son will watch this and he'll go, oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> All right, yeah. So the, there's the basic uh, you know, kind of age old question, like, is my red, your red. So is, uh, you know, is, is one person interpreting their data stream in a similar way to another person? And so maybe we can't actually tell, answer that question, but if somebody's, um, way of perceiving changed, like if somebody woke up and said, well, today all my reds turned to green, then we would have a, an indication there that kind of would show how much it could change. So my questions to you are, uh, so you, you reported some shifts in your perception, like, for example, you started seeing auras, and you report how you can ask for the auras to be, you know, in one color or another color. So I'm wondering how, just how uh, deep does this shift of perception go? Like, could you look at a regular object, you know, like, quote-unquote regular, that we all see, like, a red cup on the table, and choose to have your colors for yourself switch to a different color. And in all this, this playing with reality perception, is this like a potential, a potential avenue for growth that you actually literally work on how you perceive things in order to grow in some way? Okay. There's, there's, you know, three or four or five issues all in that. Uh, I'll try to sort some of them out. Um, you know, is my red, your red, well, there's no, no way to actually ever tell whether your red's my red. We can only tell that if we all agree on something that we call red. Red is a symbol. It's a metaphor. and it, It's a metaphor for a certain experience. So we all you know, put up a color, and most of us will say, okay, let's agree to call that experience red. But do we all know that we had exactly the same experience? No, and you never will because you can never share an experience. Experiences are fundamentally unshareable. You can only share a description of that experience. And if somebody shares a description of their experience to you, 
you can only receive that, you can only interpret that description in terms of your own you know, background, your own uh, experience base. So you never really can share an experience. So that's why we all live in our own reality. We share descriptions, but the descriptions are all interpreted in terms of our reality, and the description was, was encoded and sent to us in terms of that sender's reality. So best we can do is, is all hold up this, this card and decide that just so we can speak to each other, we'll, we'll call that experience red. Whatever anybody saw, whatever they got, whatever their experience was, they know now that when they see that experience, they'll call it red. Whatever it was, we just agree on that. So that's how that works. Yes, there's some things that you can perceive that you know differently. Um, in that, when I say that I can have the colors of an aura, I can set the I can set the format of the data I get any way I want. I can say I want anger to be zigzaggy red lines, or I can say I want it to be, you know. Something else, white lines or black lines or black circles with dots in them, whatever I want to represent certain kinds of feelings in, a, in an aura that's about emotion, then I can set that and that's the way I'll get the data. That's because it's just data in a computer and I can make the output format any way I want. It's like you can do that in a, in a, if you write your own database, you can decide what colors you want different things to be in when you, you know, as, as your symbols for things. But now when it comes to looking at a, at a coffee cup and changing the color from, you know, a red coffee cup and say, I'd like to see that as green, that's a different kind of thing because now you're talking about your, your, we're talking about the body, right? And how the body, how the rule set has evolved the avatar and the rule set has evolved an avatar for certain perceptions. And then we agree on these perceptions. So we can, we are limited by the rule set as the avatar has evolved. So the avatar now you see has evolved in our humans. We see everything from red up through violet. We don't see the things that are lower frequency than red or higher frequency than violet, but other critters do. We don't. So that's kind of the, the way that is. That's a, that's a um, constraint on our, our avatar and the data we get. The data we get is constrained by that, so we don't see the ultraviolet. Now, could we see ultraviolet if we wanted to? Well, what we could see would be data out of the database that would have to do with ultraviolet. We could train ourselves perhaps to get that information. But see it directly with our eyes? Probably not, because our eyes don't have the hardware in them to give us that data. And we can't get any data that our avatar, you know, that the rule set, uh, you know, and our avatar doesn't say that we can have. Just like we can't jump 10 feet in the air because our avatar restricts us from doing that because we're not built that way. We're too heavy. Our leg muscles aren't you know, aren't strong enough. So we just can't do it because our avatar gives us constraints. Gives us constraints on our vision as well. Gives us constraints on our, our mental activity. Get brain damage and now your consciousness is limited 
It's got new constraints because that avatar's brain got damaged. So we have to abide by the rule set and the constraints we have there. But there's a lot of ranges, a lot of stuff that we can do. Can we learn to be sensitive to ultraviolet? We can probably do that with our intent if we worked on that. That would be a perception. Can we have perceptions of things in the database? Yes, that's easy. And are there things in the database that might see ultraviolet? Sure. Database can work in any frequency it wants to. It's not, it's not uh, modified by you know, the constraints of an avatar. Database takes whatever data is useful. So if it becomes useful to us, would the system gather that data and then let us get it from the database? Well, yes, it could do that. But that's not the same as getting it because your avatar allows you to get it because your avatar now has changed to, to see ultraviolet. Now, if you do this enough, though, you start with it and you're getting it from the database and you practice it and practice it and practice it and it's, it's uh, somehow important to your growth, particularly, your avatar may develop that skill. It may start changing its biology in order to support what you are doing with your consciousness. So in that sense, the mind leads and the body follows there. So the body does provide constraints, but that body can change to enable us as consciousness to work in a, in, in a world that has fewer constraints. I don't know if I confused you, but there were about three or four different kinds of things in your question. And I'm trying to hit on all of those, but they were all kind of different ways of, of looking at a, a problem. So, yes, there are things that you can, you can change. You, your body will change to fit your mind to a certain amount. It has to be within the possibilities of the rule set. You're not going to get your, your brain to change the, the, the uh, constraints that it provides to your consciousness outside of something that is possible in the rule set. It has to be one of those, you know, one of those possibilities in the probability distribution. Now, maybe it's only a one in a 10,000 or one in a million, but it has to be in there as a possibility. Otherwise, you're never going to get your body to do it because it's not consistent with the rule set. Can't go there. That's an impossibility. So it's not that you have a blank check. But if there's something that, yeah, this is possible, it's not likely, but it's possible, but your intent is working at that, well, that'll raise that possibility and raise, you know, that probability, and maybe eventually you can see ultraviolet light because you've kind of trained yourself to do it, and that part of your body has modified itself to give you that capability. See, because that's just a little bit off of what we can do is maybe just a you know one step further away than what the average person does, and now you're not the average person anymore because you've developed this this ability to do those things. And all sorts of people have learned to push their bodies in areas that are not normal for other people. You know, you get people who can swim underwater. You know, that that's ice cold and survive, and people who can do all sorts of things with their body that seem impossible. You know, a lot of these people work in circuses, right? You know, they dance on a little wire, you know, 150 feet off the ground. That's not something the average person can do. That requires certain sets of skills to be developed and, and uh, ways of, you know, that they change. An athlete develops their ability to process oxygen. They process oxygen different than a person who doesn't push themselves 
in athletic concerns. So if you're an athlete, your lungs work differently than other people's lungs. They're more efficient. They, they get more of the oxygen out of a breath than somebody who isn't an athlete. So that's a point where the body changes itself. It, it adapts to you know what you call for it to do. Well, the brain will do that too. If you call for it to see another frequency just a little further up from violet than what you used to be able to see, and for some reason that's pressure that you put on it, then evolution tends to move to the pressure because of that pressure. So I don't know if I've answered it or not. I've Hopefully I haven't confused you more than you were when you started. Well, I was uh, part of what I was asking was um, I wasn't asking about actually changing anything about the avatar itself, but changing the way that the data is interpreted. Because uh, my understanding is that it's it's just another data stream. It might be more uh, more detailed, more constrained than an NPMR data stream. But like when color comes to your eyes, so if you're looking at at a you know a color or a you know a page has two colors on it and one's red and one's green those are both within the, the the realm of possibility for the avatar to perceive and for the avatar to perceive them differently but there's uh it seems to me that there's no constraint on how the consciousness itself um represents those colors as long as it's consistent with all the other data coming from that pmr data stream sure i mean you know, as far as us being consistent and everybody agreeing what's red, that's just a convention. That's just a, a symbol that we put on that experience. We could have called red blue and blue red and whatever. You know, those are just words. But what we, what we experience, how we interpret, that is our reality. It's how we interpret that data. The data is the way it is, and the data is limited by our rule set. And whatever that data comes, we can interpret it however we you know, whatever we uh, have in our knowledge, in our fear, in our love, in our background, in our experience, that's how we will interpret it. And if we don't have any data to interpret it, we'll take our best pattern match we can, we can get to it, and that's the way we'll see it. And that will be our reality. So if, you know, the way we see it defines our reality. It's not the data itself doesn't define our reality. Our interpretation of that data defines our reality. So is that is that then a, a potential uh, useful tool for growth? I mean, uh, I can't think of what exactly it would look like, but maybe there's some of these you know hardcore Buddhists that do these these weird meditations where you would be you would be by trying to understand and maybe even shift how you are interpreting this data actually be leading to your growth somehow. You know, I'd, I'd say yes and no. You know, in a way, if you do mental exercises, that's good for you because it's good for your discipline and it's good for your ability to focus your, your intent. But that doesn't automatically help you grow the quality of your consciousness. To grow the quality of your consciousness, you have to become love. You have to make – it's about your, your intent. It's the quality of your intent. Uh, so learning some discipline and some focus, you do that with meditation. Just like meditation by itself isn't going to help you grow up. You have to have the will to grow up, not just the meditation. So you can do some 
things with your mind like that. And yes, the discipline's good, and yes, the you know the focus is good, and you can use those then to help yourself grow up. But by themselves, you're not going to grow up just because you do those things. You know, you're not going to grow up and become love just because you meditate. That's not that's not right. gonna, that's not going to happen. So. You know, just a no. If you take what you learn and then use it in a way to make better decisions that are more loving, yeah, then it'll help you grow up. If that intention and that focus that you learn and your mental discipline, you know, helps you see things better, helps you understand better, because your mind isn't always flying around and ten different things at once, then good, that that will work. But if it doesn't, then it's just a skill you have that you haven't yet put to use. Right. Yes, uh, one one thing that you're that, you know the way you see what you see you can see more or less of something uh, you know there there's some people that when you sit down and talk with them they'll take all kinds of information from your body language uh, whether you shift your eyes up and to the right or down and to the left uh, you know whether you blink uh, how often uh, how you you know whether you lick your lips or not uh, they'll take all of this stuff and they'll learn a whole lot about what you're thinking and how you're feeling just based on all that information. And other people don't have any idea what any of that means. They don't, they can't interpret that. So they don't get that information. So it's all there in the data stream. It's not that your eyes don't see it. It's that you don't interpret it. See, your eyes see all those blinks and twitches and, and uh, you know, the eyeballs rolling up and to the left and this and that, but it doesn't mean anything to you. So you don't interpret any meaning to it. So there, you know, in that way, if you pay more attention, your your environment gets a lot richer. If you're self-absorbed, your your environment is kind of plain gray. So yes, you can focus on things and get a whole lot more information out of the data that you're receiving because you know how to interpret it. 